You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. It's a pleasure today to have the opportunity to talk with Dr. Adam Friedman, who is professor and chair of the Department of Dermatology at George Washington University. I want to congratulate Adam because he recently has gotten the full title of being chairman. He was interim chairman for a while. So congratulations on that, Adam. So uh, welcome to Derms and Conditions podcast. Thank you for the invitation, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. So you know that I have a lot of questions. I mean, people think I'm smarter than I really am. So I have to call I have to call people behind the scenes and ask them things. So I, I you know, I do that with you all the time because you work in a lot of uh, very interesting areas and I have a lot of respect for that. So I'd like to start by asking you because patients come in and they're either using a CBD product or they have questions about them and there's so much out there. And I think a lot of white noise, quite frankly, maybe I'm wrong. How do we determine, first of all, what is cannabidiol able to do for us in dermatology based on its properties if we could harvest them properly? Yeah, that's it's a great question. I think we have more questions than answers, sadly. Um, you know, our, our ability to investigate these questions was, was hindered for, for decades uh, due to the Schedule One labeling of any component of a cannabis plant. So, so let's, let's take a step back and think what that means. I mean, certainly when we think about THC, which is probably the best known cannabinoid for its um, effects, but there are close to 100 different cannabinoids, many of which have no effect on mentation, yet any component of that plant was considered an illegal substance. So that makes it kind of hard to uh, both develop products, but even before then, doing any really good investigation to understanding mechanism of action. So you say THC, you're talking about tetrahydrocannabinol, what we think about in pot. People think about what the active component of smoking marijuana or whatever. So so I... What you say is absolutely true. We were involved with a pharmaceutical company that had a topical uh, CBD product, and we had to get the DEA to inspect our site to get us this very special. It was over $10,000, and they had to supply it safe that everything had to be in, and there was no THC in the product. It was pure CBD. <laughs> so just the hurdles was nine months of going through regulations to even be able to do the study. But where are we now? with the different formulations that are out there, because people can go, uh, you can get CBD at the checkout line at a convenience store. I mean, it's everywhere. So how do we know what people are actually getting and what these formulations actually do? If they're putting it on eczema, psoriasis, painful joints, can you shed some light on that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think your your story and, and your, your tale of woe of having to deal with the DEA um, was very true up until recently. So at, at the end of 2018, the Farm Bill went into effect, which pretty much said that anything derived from hemp, which is defined by less than 0.3% THC, was legal. And then all of a sudden, all these non-psychoactive uh, cannabinoids like CBD are now available from the checkout counter to a gym to a medispa, you name it. And everyone, their mother decided that it was a great idea to throw CBD in practically everything uh, without any evidence really supporting the claims. Now, the reason why this kind of passed muster and happened was because of the kind of controversy and the allure of the cannabinoid space. People didn't really care about the lack of evidence. They're like, oh, now I can access, oh, there's CBD in here. It's got to cure everything because it's natural, right? You know, that's not true. So I I think we went from literally zero to 60 in a matter of two nanoseconds 
Um, and, and that's a big problem because to your point, A, how do we know what it's doing, if it's doing anything at all? And two, which I'll certainly get into, is that quality assurance. Um, and I think that's something we have to talk about because the FDA has a set capacity to really regulate and oversee and ensure that all these God knows how many mom and pop companies that popped up right after uh, the farm bill went into effect to really ensure that the Prod, the ingredients that are listed on the label are actually in there and that these companies are not making claims that have, infer a biological impact or anything medical or even go beyond what they're, they're really allowed to do. So um, really, this, this sudden exposure and this sudden access has really created, I think, more problems and has probably hurt the field to some respect because you're right, there are so many products out there that say they have CBD in them that probably don't have even close to the amount that's in there. And two, they may not have any impact based on the way they're delivered because it's not just about the ingredients, it's also about how you deliver them. And with cannabinoids overall, that's really important because cannabinoids are lipophilic, meaning they like fatty environments. Uh, they're also quite large in terms of their molecular size. And so if you don't purposely design your product to overcome some of those limitations, it's getting nowhere. It's gonna sit on the top layer of your skin and not get in. Um, so I, I think that's where a pipeline of mechanism investigations, but also how you deliver it, are really going to be central to the success of this entire space. So when, just to make sure we're not overutilizing abbreviations, CBD is cannabidiol, correct? That's the, correct. Cannabidiol. Yeah. Cannabidiol. So let, let's you know, let's let's talk about those. Um. So so I mentioned you know THC CBD. These are probably the two most common acronyms used to describe, correct, you know, two of maybe close to 100 or a little over cannabinoids that are available. But I, I think we, we need to also take a step back and define the overall cannabinoid world because phytocannabinoids, plant-derived cannabinoids, are one of three broad categories. As you mentioned, you know, THC and CBD are the uh, two probably best known, but we have our own cannabinoids that you and I are making right now as we're having this lovely conversation. Um, these are called endocannabinoids. They are derived from arachidonic acid and they are made on demand to regulate probably every physiologic process in our bodies. Uh, the best studied one is called anandamide or AEA, but there are several. And then the third broad category are the synthetic cannabinoids, which I like to think you know, kind of combine the best of both worlds. You know, they take what we understand about the endocannabinoid system, which are the cannabinoids that we're making, their receptors, and then the also the regulatory proteins that will break them down, just like any good biological system, and also what we know about the phytocannabinoids. And then they purposely design them in the lab for uh, clinical indication. So I think it's important to not just tunnel vision into the plant derived, because as I mentioned, we make our own and there's definitely therapeutic utility with those, uh, those cannabinoids, but also there are multiple synthetic cannabinoids coming down the pipeline that we probably will see in the clinical space relatively soon for certain dermatologic indications. So when we say we make our own, we're talking about our body synthesizes them. Not that you and I are right. in a no, lab not in, your in your backyard. Making, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, so, I can't speak so, for everyone, Jim, but uh. yeah, but 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 we're clean. We're clean. Uh, yeah. So right. <laughs> now I'm in the treatment room with a patient that I'm treating with atopic dermatitis yeah. or acne 
acne. And they say, oh, by the way, I've been using this product. It's a CBD. Maybe they don't even know, have the product with them or they may bring it in one of those little plastic bags with everything else. Is this okay to use? Right. And I think about it in two different ways. Is it something that's going to help them? Or is this formulation going to create some kind of dermatitis or adverse effect, but really doing nothing for their skin condition that they're treating? So how do you handle that with patients in terms of, because they can get these products different places. Are there specific products that you're familiar with that may be beneficial in certain conditions, or are we not there yet? Yep. So, so Jim, you're asking the perfect question. So, so let's start with the second one, which is, are they going to cause harm with the product? And, you know, I think it's important to take the, whatever product you're looking at from, from a holistic perspective. So the active ingredient is one, but then it's also what excipients and also what other possible things are coming along for the ride with respect to, you know, uh, whether it be pesticides or, or other uh, synthetic ingredients that are incorporated in, into the product overall. So the first thing I say, because you know, as I mentioned, there's so many products that have infiltrated the market. I always tell the patient, you know, go to their website, check for any quality assurance uh, information. And if it's not there, call the company. And if they do not offer that information, that is a good indicator that they're probably not above board. The second part of that is um, depending on where you live, going on the Department of Health website, if wherever, and it's roughly about two-thirds of the United States at this point, um, in any state where medical cannabis is has been legalized for medical purposes or even beyond that, you know, areas like Washington, D.C. or even California, where it's been legalized overall for recreational use, I have been so impressed with the educational websites that have been developed over the years um, to really offer both uh, practitioners as well as the consumer uh, relative uh, and, and important information. And one of those things is they will actually have good manufacturer lists in terms of what companies uh, that they're aware of are really being held to a higher standard in terms of that quality assurance. So I think utilizing Department of Health websites, but also even reaching out to the company of the product you purchased to see if they can provide you with a quality assurance certificate and all the various things they do to ensure their product is what it says it is, but also doesn't have impurities um, is one way to go about it. Um, because absolutely there are case reports of people using topical uh, cannabinoid oils or, or even um, there's actually one case report of a dermal, of a dermal hypersensitivity reaction to the uh, oral FDA-approved drug Epidolix, which is for seizures, uh, as we know, any drug could possibly cause a uh, you know type four hypersensitivity reaction. Um, so everyone's immunologic profile is unique, and certainly there could be ingredients in any of these products that could cause an allergic or even irritant contact derm. So I think that's probably the safest way to go about it. Now the hardest question, of course, is will this actually do anything for my patient, and are there products we can recommend at this point in time? I'll start with part two. It's, it's that's a really tough one, and I would say in the atopic dermatitis world, we probably have the most clinical information. Um, I have to give a shout out to uh, you know one, one of my colleagues, uh, uh, Dr. Robert uh, Delaval, who, who's out in Colorado, who actually just recently published two small clinical studies in both dry skin but also in atopic dermatitis using uh, a cannabinoid gel, a CBD-rich gel. Um, I'm blanking on the name of the company um, that funded those studies. I, I know. Um, his, his collaborator was, uh, was Dr. Helena Yardley. 
Um, but we're starting to see small studies and hopefully larger FDA clinical pipeline programs that will allow us to make educated decisions based on the evidence. Um, but at least in atopic derm, we are starting to see a signal of success with CBD products. The question is, as you mentioned, which one do you use? Um, and, and, and for those studies, one was published, I believe, in JDD, the other in uh, Derm Online Journal um, just in February of 2021. Um, so you can certainly see what company that uh, uh what company produced that product that they evaluated. Um, we're also seeing kind of anecdotal self-reported case studies. Um, you know, there's a, a company called Greenway Therapeutics that has a nano CBD formulation um, that uh, just full disclosure, I'm on the, uh, the advisory board, but uh, <laughs> we've yet to be paid for anything. So I guess there's really no conflict of interest, right? Um, so, um, you know, there, there's some self-reports that this CBD has helped with uh, patients with established atopic dermatitis and other inflammatory disorders. But yeah, I think, you know, in terms of giving some real evidence-based guidance of what products to use, we're not there yet, sadly, but I, I think we'll be there in the next couple of years. Well, it sounds like to me that probably in six months to a year, I'll be calling you again to get an update as we have new scientific information. That was very helpful. I have another question for you because this is something that comes up frequently in clinical practice with patients, usually uh, female patients that are on oral spironolactone or we're thinking about prescribing oral spironolactone. And we go through the history and they say, you have, has anybody in your family had breast cancer or have you ever had breast cancer? And they might say, oh, I had an aunt that had breast cancer. I think, you know, from years ago, I don't know all the details on that. And most people, some people are amazing on the details that they know that you can even tell you the receptor testing that people have, you know, they're detail oriented, but a lot of patients don't. So I know you did some, pub some analyses of data and actually published, I believe, in the Journal of American Academy of Dermatology, an analysis of this subject. So now Adam Friedman's in the room with the patient, and you have different scenarios. So what information do you feel is important? What risks do you think are actually there? And how do the answers that the patients give affect what you actually do if you prescribe oral spironolactone or not? Bunch of questions there, yeah. but I know you. I know you can run with it. Yeah, I, I will. I will do my best to live up to that that standard. Yeah, no, I I, I think that there there are scenarios even beyond the family the family history of breast cancer, and certainly when we think about any medication that is going to uh, whether it itself is a hormone or may manipulate hormones, uh, we have to be concerned about hormone sensitive cancers, at least from a purely a theoretical standpoint. And so I'll take your scenario and, and kind of one-up you on that in terms of uh, the field of supportive oncodermatology. You know, I run the clinic at GW where we're getting cancer patients, and many of them are breast cancer survivors, uh, many of which with uh, whether it be uh, chronic hair thinning or persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia, married to maybe a family history of androgenic alopecia. And what are we going to do for them? And we know that spironolactone off-label is a wonderful option for hormone-sensitive hair thinning. But once again, are we going to be concerned in a patient with a known history of breast cancer who's been maybe recently treated or treated in past years, um, what are we going to do about that? Are we going to offer them that option? There, before you know, I really asked that question, um, there, is a couple, there are a couple papers in the literature, smaller studies that were suggestive of spironolactone being safe in this patient population for getting even, you're right, your acne patient 
who may report to you they have a, a family history of breast cancer and, and looking at them right through the door, you know they're going to benefit from spironolactone. We're talking about patients who actually have breast cancer. And, and at least based on the early literature, I felt comfortable prescribing it. And what happened was one of uh, my colleagues in the, in, in the cancer center, one of the breast, breast oncologists, every time I did this, would call me and say, what are you doing? Why are you giving this? You're going you're to cause a recurrence. And I said, well, well, why do you think that? Well, I know because you're messing with hormones. Obviously, that's going to be a problem. Well, why do you think that? And, and she didn't really have a great answer for me. And that's actually very often how great research questions first come about. You know, why would an oncologist say this? And why would I argue against it? And so that that's where, uh, you know, really well-formulated research questions can, can make a big difference. And to really answer that question, you need a large number of, of patients. And we, we turned to, um, you know, insurance database because, you know, doing a small study of 100, 200 patients is not going to be able to allow you to generalize to the overall public. Um, and so we, we, we sifted through a very large patient database um, looking at breast cancer recurrence within two years. Because in, in many cases, at least looking at the oncology literature, um, if breast cancer is going to recur, it's going to be within the first two years of the initial diagnosis. Um, and we showed that there was no difference from patients receiving spironolactone and those who weren't in terms of the cases of recurrence. And so we felt pretty good about uh, hanging our hat on the fact that spironolactone use in this patient population, and of course, well beyond into that patient you just mentioned, who you're thinking about spironolactone for, whether it be acne, whether it be uh, pattern hair loss, uh, or even beyond, because I think spironolactone has a ton of utility in hormone-sensitive uh, inflammatory diseases and, and beyond that. Um, so I felt pretty good with the data we generated that we were not going to cause harm and, and only do good. So if you're looking at an overall population, could you give me a ballpark of how many patients were in that analysis from the database, what the end yeah, number so was? Yeah, so thousands. Yeah, so, so it was roughly 3,600 3, patients. So it, what I think about when when I have that question, not, not being an expert in, in breast cancer, is they now do different types of hormonal testing for different receptor positivities and negativities, estrogen uh, sensitivities, et cetera. Would it make a difference what actual type on a molecular level that of breast cancer that the patients had? Because I would think that you, that analysis, maybe you weren't able to get to that level of detail. Do you think that could make a difference? Um, you know, it's funny. Actually, someone asked that question after we published the paper. Um, I think that would be hard, you know, with the, with the way we approach this in um, you know, identifying breast cancer patients, and actually, I, I got to take a second and correct that. So we actually looked at over 200,000 patients with breast cancer, but then we kind of whittle it down to more in the thousands range in terms of those on spironolactone and looking at recurrences. Um, but because we're relying on documentation, uh, mostly, um, you know, ICD codes, it would be very difficult to kind of have that level of specificity. I think what would be useful is more longitudinal study and prospective studies once you've identified these patients and, and to your point, really made it personalized in terms of the molecular fingerprint of these tumors to see if that recurrence occurs um, over time. But at least with the methodology we use, I, I think it would be very difficult to do so. So it sounds to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, and I get corrected a lot for being wrong. So uh, I, have thick, I have thick skin, Adam, so don't feel like you're going to hurt my feelings. What we can talk about 
amongst ourselves or if we're talking to colleagues about this, the best information we have looking at a large database and some other smaller studies that were done, it does not appear that we're put pa putting patients at risk if there's a family history or even a personal history of breast cancer. But disclosing to the patient, we don't have the, all, all the answers on that and they need to be involved with that decision. There has to be some level of informed consent from the patient yeah. that they understand. We don't have all the information, but the best data we have does not appear to be putting them at risk. Would you agree with you, that? You, you said it absolutely perfectly. I, I couldn't, I wouldn't change a thing because, and that's the reality of all research. You know, you, Nothing is 100% certain. And, and I literally say what you just said. Um, the one thing maybe I would add is that uh, if a patient seems a little unsure, I offer to contact uh, their oncologist to touch base about it. And I, I think it's always nice to do that, to reach across the aisle. I think it, yeah. it fosters uh, good collaboration, but also patient referrals. Um, but I say exactly that. I'm like, based on the current literature and research, Lisa Gio, that we did, we felt confident that putting you on this medication, which in my experience does seem to help, uh, in terms of hair density, will not increase the risk for breast cancer recurrence. And I can say anecdotally from my own experience now doing this for several years and putting many, many breast cancer patients on spironolactone, I have yet to see recurrence associated with it. And that's one of the nice things about being an academic institution and so tied into the cancer center. I really do get to follow these patients quite closely, uh, but that's going to be a small and, and anecdotal. But you're right. You always got to be like the guy at the end of the commercial saying, you know, you know, we, we can only say so much based on the current available literature and may cause all these other things. You know, I, I think we can't be 100% certain because it is the practice of medicine, not the certainty of medicine, um, and say that at least for now, this is what we know, but we're doing ongoing research to make sure we understand it better. Right. And I agree with you. I, I have in pretty much in every case called the oncologist that's managing that patient or whoever's responsible for the situation with them. And every time, not that there's not going to be a time where it's different, they say, oh, don't worry about it. You don't have to worry about that. And, and they right. tell you to move forward. Anyway, Adam, I want to thank you for your time answering my questions, of which I have many. You always <laughs> help pleasure. me. And I want to thank everyone for joining us today. We hope that we gave you practical tips that you can use in your practice with patients on an everyday basis. If you missed any previous episodes of Derms and Conditions, go to Apple Podcasts, search Derms and Conditions, and follow us. If you have any questions or comments, please go to podcasts at fred.health and let us know what you're interested in, what you like and what you don't like, and we'll try to take your comments and improve further programs even more. But I don't think you can get much improvement on what Dr. Friedman did today. Thank you.